Imagine a tomorrow powered by innovation, bringing the world together through real conversations about world-changing ideas, expert discussions with no boundaries. Coming up... Those who involved very different types of stakeholders to the process were successful. Making sure that there's a boots on the ground person, right, who very, very deeply understands the processes that are being digitalized, crucial to success, as well as key stakeholders all the way up into the, the C-suite who can give the support and the resources necessary for a, a pilot or full-scale deployment in order to, again, kind of get over that curmudgeon effect. This is the Real Conversations podcast by Nokia. Here is Michael Hainsworth. Getting over the curmudgeon effect is only one hurdle in the way of Industry 4.0. Jennifer Kent of Parks Associates identified the top five roadblocks enterprises face when launching an initiative. They are networking and the legacy environment, the data, cybersecurity, vendors, and the way any given enterprise operates. We sat down to discuss the roadblocks and the secrets to success from those who have already taken the path. In many cases, the problems and solutions are consistent across industry, but not all. Industry 4.0 is at a really interesting stage of deployment. Um, In fact, most companies that are engaging in Industry 4.0 deployments are at various stages, of course, of their deployments and understanding how they can use the technology. We thought it was really important to... Uh, go out and study what the current roadblocks are, especially as um, enterprises and uh, you know municipalities who are deploying these technologies have had a, a, a pretty challenging past two years, right? Um, and so trying to understand if, if deployments have, have stalled, if, if they're moving forward, if they're more important now than ever, and what are the roadblocks you know, there to deployment? So if every industry is going to have its own hurdles that it needs to overcome, roadblocks it needs to clear, potholes to drive around, uh, what about, for example, the transportation industry? We're not just thinking about cars today as standard internal combustion engine vehicles, but as smart cars, autonomous vehicles, vehicle-to-vehicle communication, keeping an eye on the road, all of those sorts of things will be the next generation of the automobile industry. As we roll out the next generation of wireless, what are some of the hurdles to implementation that we see within transportation specifically? Transportation, um, it's the fact that you're not in one spot, right? Right. So let's say there's transportation. We talked to um, CIO of a a large uh, transportation company that focuses primarily on busing, right? And you're going to different municipalities. You're moving in and out of uh, different ranges of uh, cellular networks, um, different terminals may have different uh, technologies, ne- networks that you have to um, log into or log out of. And then, of course, that complexity is multiplied when uh, looking at airlines because now you're out of country and very, very, very different uh, networking environments in different markets and also at different airports. So uh, one thing that might not be widely known is that um, airports often are not um, sharing uh, their network capabilities with airlines. And so the air, each of these different um, stakeholders that are coming in and out of an airport are having to deploy and manage their own networking uh, technologies and infrastructure and communication language. Um, and so a, a lot of um, barriers to making, uh, t- to really, honestly, collecting all the data that they'd like on their roadmap to be able to digitalize an entire process um, through the, you know, the transportation journey, if you will. 
Energy, meantime, we talk about how there's no green without digital, but digitalization of the energy industry has its own unique challenges. What's the, the one that jumps out at you? There's challenges from uh, going all the way to the raw materials of, of mining in, in, the, in the coal mines, right, and developing a deployment there all the way to, um, you know, energy distribution. Um, let's take wind, for example, wind and nuclear. We talked to some, some technology decision makers that are running wind operations as well as, as nuclear plants. So in wind, you've got a situation where you may have um, windmills that are two, three kilometers offshore, right? And so you're already out of the range of, um, of, of many deployments of the, of the networks that you might be uh, wanting to rely on. But it's really important. In fact, we found that in the wind industry, 60% of the cost of wind generation is maintenance and operation. Anything that can bring those costs down, um, you know, is is enormously beneficial to that industry. Being able to deploy sensors that understand the temperature, that understand the moisture and the humidity, right? And actually, they're using... Um, optics to be able to take pictures, you know, a hundred pictures a minute or so, and then use AI to um, understand what they're seeing to track corrosion in the windmills and to get it ahead and to be able to plan for corrosion in the windmills, right? Again, an enormously difficult to do that in an offshore environment. Um, and so there are some technical issues in the windmill, in the wind generation industry that we heard about. In nuclear, what was really interesting was um, the mismatch between technology development life cycles and um, the the safety and monitoring needs of spent fuel rods. So um, spent fuel rods tend to take about 80 years for the radioactivity to decay to a safe level. They're actually deploying sensors, right, and monitoring solutions today to be able to track the radioactivity levels of, of spent fuel rods, but they don't have sensors that are going to last 80 years. <laughs> Huge opportunity for the industry out there. If you have sensors that can last 80 years in an extremely harsh environment, there's an opp opportunity for you there. But but so, right, there's a thoughtfulness in this very, very long-term planning and a need for vendors that can support uh, these types of use cases long-term or... Um, you know, can can kind of match these very specific needs of specific industries. What's interesting to me is that, sure, we talk about the built environment and networking and that there are challenges that are different depending on the industry in which we're looking. But at the same time, when it comes to the other hurdles um, to adoption that you've researched, it seems fairly universal across the various industries. When it comes to data architecture and infrastructure, I'm surprised by the lack of understanding of current critical processes. Is industry simply just too complicated these days for the corner office to understand how everything works? Yeah, we absolutely found that um, data data um, architecture, right, and uh, mapping the data architecture of your industry for deployments to actual processes was a disconnect. When we asked for lessons learned, what would you have done differently? Um, there is sometimes too much actually of a, a rush to deploy um organization wide, as opposed to taking a step-by-step -step approach and taking the time to understand what the current critical processes are uh, for your organization that you want to digitalize, right? And starting there. When organizations kind of bit off more than they could chew, um, that's when they really ran into 
problems, ran into wasted investment. Those organizations that that kind of started with a specific process, tracked the specific process, digitalized that process, and then looked for efficiencies and iterated on that tended to be much more successful. And I can imagine part of the problem of trying to roll out company-wide any uh, Industry 4.0 initiative that involves data is that we've got all these data silos. How do we go from the data silos to data lakes that are necessary to leverage machine learning and artificial intelligence? Yeah, that's a great question. So the reality is that most organizations are working with a mix of legacy technology, legacy infrastructure, new deployments of, of new technologies from a very a wide variety of different vendors. Um there's unless you're dealing with a completely new plant build or commissioning a new, you know, nuclear plant, right? Um, you're you're going to absolutely be in a situation where you need to integrate legacy and and new systems. Um, and uh, what we found is that most of the folks that we talked to who um, found a way to be successful in integrating their data silos did work with a vendor that could help integrate those technologies or can help them write code that that brought together unique systems with a specific application for that um, for that organization. So let me just to, to give a um, an example specifically from an auto manufacturer, um, a, a manufacturer of auto parts. Um, who had a, a pretty nice deployment of technology and tracking of their inventory, right? And their warehouse and the parts and the components that go into the larger parts that they're assembling and manufacturing. And then you actually have the assembly line, a totally different type of process, totally different type of sensors, totally different type of, you know, deployment. But for the warehouse and the inventory to know exactly what piece is going on to line and to adjust the inventory in real time, um, has caused enormously, uh, you know, enormous savings to the tune of $20 million a year for this uh, manufacturer. And so, um, but in order to make their assembly line uh, data talk to their inventory data, right, that the systems that were purpose built for these two different use cases were what they described as 85 to 90% perfect, right? What they needed, but it's this 10% that, that of, of, of how they could, uh, communicate them together, right. That really needed some, some custom codes some custom support, um, and a, a specialist who could help them come in and, and write what, just what they needed. And then they could replicate that across all of their plants, right? Um, no need to, uh, create a custom solution for each of their plants. They could, they could scale it across the organization. Once we start talking about data, we have to talk about cybersecurity yeah. with Industry 4.0 and, and 5G. These are technologies that are broadly cloud native. Uh, we have to address the issue of cloud connections and the security therein, but also the operational technologies, not just IT, but OT. And you pointed out there are legacy components, legacy systems that are uh, uh, have to be addressed as well. Within cybersecurity and related threats, what do you see as the biggest challenge? A few things there. So everybody is very conservative, right? Um, very nervous about cybersecurity threats as they need to be. Um, it is itself a roadblock to deployment, right? There are industries that are extremely um, sensitive. Every organization feels, of course, that its data is sensitive, but then you get into critical infrastructure, you get into 
um, again, major uh, safety issues for something, again, like a nuclear power plant, right? And then regulatory issues. Uh, And so that where a new deployment of technology in a particularly um, hazardous environment um, may not even be approved by regulators because of cybersecurity concerns and where um, legacy equipment was all local and not exposed to the internet, um, you know, new deployments essentially assume some connectivity that's not local. So, um, what we have found is, you know, again and again, our interviewees, our, through our research, we have found, you know, that the number one recommendation is network segmentation, right? Um, having multiple layers of authorities and permissions uh, to get into um, critical processes and then and then keeping local what needs to be local and having private networks that do that. So in the, in the nuclear case, of course, anything that actually touches the operation um, and the production of energy within the plant um, is in no way connected to the many other processes that are um, moving to the cloud. So for instance, any of the HR and the office and the email and the right um, systems are, are absolutely being uh, moved to the cloud, but the on-site plant um, operations need to be, uh, you know, segmented and, and part of their own network. Now, one thing that's that also came up as a barrier is the fact that many of the solutions on market today related to uh, cybersecurity protections are really built with an IT um, de- deployments and use cases and 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 personnel in mind, and not OT or operational technology, right? And so. We actually found that there is a feeling that there's a lack of vendors with a specialized knowledge in operational technology security. Right. You can find anybody to secure your email server. Exactly. Exactly right. But to find uh, vendors that have that specialized knowledge of securing IoT devices and securing sensors and right is a very, very different skill set. Um, and also educating when you bring on an oper- a secure operational technology platform into an organization, being able to uh, train the on-site IT staff who are used to dealing with IT-developed cybersecurity solutions on the OT solution, right? Um, so a little bit of a disconnect there that the industry really needs to work through. 5G is built with multiple ring fences around its technologies because we recognized the weak points in legacy networks. But legacy networks aren't going away anytime soon. Yeah, that, I mean, that's absolutely right. And I think that speaks again. And what we heard in our research was to be able to work with vendors that know how to patch these systems, um, who have done it before, who can show uh, you know, proof of of concept or a speak to integrations that they've done in the past where that knowledge carries forward. When it comes to the roadblock of people and processes, I suppose we have to talk about managing expectations. This is a a harder one for those in the, you know, who are creating wonderful technology solutions uh, to, to tackle. But the reality is right. Everybody who's deploying and industry 4.0 against their their, their roadmap um, is working with an organization of people. They're making decisions, right? I'm trying to bring people on board. We found we heard um, a little bit about the, trying to tackle the uh, curmudgeon effect, right? There's always those people in the organization who simply don't see the need for change. Um, 
don't understand or, or don't clearly see the return on investment. Um, and of course have very real concerns about, um, things like cybersecurity, um, and, and again, whether or not this is going to be going to be worth it. Oftentimes a, a really necessary and an important check. Um, and so we found, uh, for those, in our research, we found that there were a couple of different, really successful ways to bring people in the organization along. And oftentimes that does start with a smaller scale pilot or trial, um, which allows for a smaller level of investment, uh, but you can prove out the, um, the usefulness of the technology. You can test uh, return on investment assumptions um, and have a little bit, you know, there's pr- proof is in the pudding, right? And and have the ability to show the data and the learnings, and of course iterate, right? You're gonna, you're always going to learn from that that pilot of what you can do better next time. Um, we also found that those who involved d- very different types of stakeholders to the process were successful. So, for instance, making sure that there's a, an actual plant manager, a boots on the ground person, right, who very, very deeply understands the processes that are being digitalized, um, the challenges that that you might run up against um, in a very practical way is crucial to success, as well as key stakeholders all the way up into the, the C-suite who can give the support and the resources necessary for a, a pilot or full-scale deployment in order to, again, kind of get over that curmudgeon effect. Well, to that point, you touched on return on investment. Every decision is a financial decision. How do we overcome the challenges of estimating ROI and communicating project value? Yeah, so actually a little bit of it goes back to that point about taking um, specific processes and first understanding the legacy process, right? So you have to have a baseline to compare against. Um, So taking the time to understand the the process um, that you're changing or that you're digitalizing um, and then moving forward with a, a, a pilot allows you to, again, prove out those, those metrics. Um, oftentimes, also, we, we heard a lot about uh, making sure that every plant isn't reinventing the wheel, every location, every mining site, right? Um, these are large organizations that operate across countries and, and have many, many different um, plants that, let's say, um, may be generating energy in in China and also in the UK and also in Mexico, right? And um, making sure that there is organizational alignment that when you learn and you prove out in one place, you can do it in in multiple different places. And again, everybody's not inventing, reinventing the wheel. It came back to making sure you get a baseline, right? Uh, Taking a step-by-step approach and and doing pilots that, that prove it out. And again, trying, maybe not trying to um, bite off more than, than you can chew and letting the use case drive uh, your deployment of technology. We already know that 5G will require CSPs to rebuild themselves to be partnership-oriented with both customers and vendors. It's not been a historically strong suit. But what about the Industry 4.0 customers? What's the biggest issue in working with vendors for them? Yeah, the biggest issue in working with the vendors that we heard in our research was actually around reliability. So of of the vendor, right? So um, there actually is quite a uh, bias towards large traditional established players. And actually, this is to the benefit of CSPs, right? Compared to um, newer organizations who... um, you know, don't have the proven track record or just even 
history as an organization, uh, that they will be there for the long term. So this kind of goes back to the idea of the life cycle of technology um, being pretty quick, um, but most of these customers um, are, are dealing with product life cycles that are, are much, much, much longer. They can, and they expect their industry 4.0 deployments to be decades, serving them for decades, not, not a few years, right? Uh, we heard from one manufacturer, one mining operation, a, a big, big leader in global gold mining, who one of the roadblocks that they encountered was working with a vendor who um, did not have the extensive support capabilities that ultimately they needed. And they felt that they had gone through a good process to understand, oh, yes, of course, there are assurances that there would be long term support. Now, because of um, that experience, they do an extremely thorough, in-depth investigation of an organization's ability to provide support long-term, making sure there's not just, you know, three people in a back office somewhere that's supporting. There's a full built-out long-term plan for support. Um, and, and obviously, that's something that I think positions CSPs really well uh, in the overall as being a, a leading type of vendor. So these are the top five roadblocks that enterprises are facing in their Industry 4.0 initiatives. Yeah. What, though, of the positive Industry 4.0 experiences in your survey sample, which had the biggest impact for an organization? Yeah, I'm. you know, it's it's interesting. Um, we heard so many successes. We're looking for roadblocks, uh, but we heard absolutely awesome successes and, and really interesting and innovative ways that people are, are deploying technology. So... Um, we heard a lot in the, uh, about fleets management and, and people safety, actually. So using um, optics to be able to watch drivers and look for sleepiness and make sure that uh, people are um, that the people right are getting the rest that they need and then start setting off automatic alerts and alarms um, for anybody that has any sort of driver in their in their fleet or their operation. We heard about uh, technologies um, being deployed for that reduces waste and saving you know millions and millions of dollars a year, for instance, in a manufacturer who's making um, tier one supply to the auto industry and um, talking about how there is a major, issue that most industries are feeling these days around staffing, right? You hear about the uh, great resignation and everybody's moving jobs and that that impacts everybody. One of the issues is um, training, right? So if you're, if you're having more staff turnover, um, you, you know, a lot of these uh, folks are, are pretty specialized in their skills and having new, um, uh, new operators uh, you know, trying to onboard them and train them in new ways. And so having um, ca the capability to have training videos right at each operator's location throughout the plant on every single process and tracking them through the process and surfacing um, a training video right at the right time, you know, really, really interesting and really impactful and an innovative way of applying um, technology to a people problem. Uh, we have... Um, heard about uh, a lot about equipment, uh, maintenance, you know, uh, one of the, the, I think, easiest ways for people to understand a return on investment is making sure that your equipment lasts longer and you're getting the most number of hours out of equipment as, as possible, right? And so I think one of the earliest deployments you see across, um, whether it's manufacturing, mining, energy, right, transportation is understanding better um, 
you know, the, the equipment life cycle and when something needs to be tuned up and when something doesn't. So for instance, um, again, kind of back to the mining industry, um, the, the old legacy process for vehicle maintenance was based on hours. So how many hours has this vehicle been operating it? And when do we pull it to have tune up, um, and to, and to do proactive maintenance? Well, uh, now if, if it's actually running, you can look at the filters, right. And say, well, the filters actually aren't dirty enough and the oil level is just fine. And I can actually get 50 more hours out of this vehicle before I have to pull it for maintenance. Right. So each one of those changes is, is really interesting. If you allow, I'll give one more really interesting example that I, that I thought was, was really phenomenal was applying technology to enable, um, operations that wouldn't be possible based on essentially human decision-making and human computation. So, um, so for instance, I, we talked to the CIO of a airline that is specifically focused on uh, their cargo operations and specifically responsible for the cargo operations. And humans tend to be very good at, um, being able to fit cargo into, uh, you know, an airplane, um, to only to a certain extent, there's always wasted capacity. And so they've been able to deploy, uh, sensors and vision system and, and, uh, AI to be able to actually create what, what he described as sort of a, a, a Tetris optimization, right? Absolutely fitting, uh, selecting the right cargo in the right configuration and packing it in such a way that you're optimizing the, sp the space on that aircraft, right? Um, and of course, every inch of that aircraft in a cargo sense is monetizable. And so you want to absolutely make sure that you're, you're optimizing that space. And it just turns out that humans are not that good at 3D, 4D dimension, dimensional, you know, computation in real time. So really fantastic application of, of Industry 4.0 with very clear returns on investment there. So of the 30 leaders that you surveyed around the globe in transportation, energy, manufacturing, at the end of the day, what letter grade would you give the leaders you spoke with? Interesting to, to grade the leaders. I would say they're they're all at least at a B plus, if not an A minus. And and I would give them that grade honestly because they're all they're all very clearly learning and iterating on what they've learned. So not every six every deployment's been successful. Um, but there's always been a stage two or a stage three or stage four, and this is what we're doing differently. And this is what we've learned also very, very eager to share their learnings. Right. So I don't think that there's a particularly strong, um, sense of, uh, proprietariness or, or protection around how they're deploying um, innovation, a strong willingness to essentially talk shop with others and share what they're learning and really move their, their whole industries forward, which I think is, is really a great, great leadership. So ultimately, the best leaders who are doing the best job at rolling out Industry 4.0 initiatives are the ones who have started small iterated based upon the experiences they've learned, turned the curmudgeons into evangelists, and then figured out what the ROI is and share it with the world. Great summarization, a lot harder to do <laughs> than to say. Um, <laughs> but yes, that's exactly right. The Real Conversations podcast by Nokia, building a future that's sustainable, productive, and inclusive together.
Discover how by visiting nokia.com slash no boundaries.